uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're going to be spending a bit of time there. Uh, and as I, I was looking at that, I realised I've never preached a sermon on David and Goliath. Um, ever. Uh, 20 years, never, never preached on it. Um, so today's the day. Uh, you get it. I was asking my kids the story of David and Goliath and going, what? And I'm thinking, what's our kids' ministry doing? Not teaching the story of David and Goliath. That's, that's every year it's there, I thought. My kids must miss that week or something. Um, that or they don't have great memories. Um, like many of you, because I actually have preached on David and Goliath um, two years ago and no one corrected me. No, I didn't. Um, <laughs> that's all right. Um, but we'll get into it. But before we start that, let me, let me quote... Um, Someone, Oz Guinness. Oz Guinness may be one of the, the most um, prestigious prophetic minds of our, of our time, Christian uh, speaker. And uh, so Oz Guinness says this, The problem with Western church Christians is not that they aren't where they should be, but that they aren't what they should be where they are. It comes from his book, The Call. He has a lot to say about the Western church and about Western Christians. And the problem is not that they aren't where they should be, but that they aren't what they should be where they are. He goes on to say, The biggest threat facing the church is not secularism, postmodernism, atheism, Islam, or any other purported threat raised and broadcast by the fear-mongering machines. It comes from our own evangelical worldliness and our signal failure... I thought that was a typo, I thought it was a single failure, but our signal failure to live the way of Jesus. That is what's the biggest problem. There's nothing threatening us besides us. There's nothing greater than God, uh, and uh, except us not stepping forward with God. Uh, is against, I guess, my summary of what he's saying there. Uh, but it raises this point that we're talking about today. We're in a series looking at the essentials of the church, the, the, the heart of the church, these things that, that need to be essential to, to each one of us. We've looked at uh, being equipped with the Word of God. We've looked at, uh, as a church, we should have deep and authentic relationships with one another. Um, we've looked last week at impact beyond these walls, not just the physical walls, but the walls inside each of us. Uh, today, we look at integrating faith in our everyday. And as we look at that word, integrate, it really just means bringing things that are separate things together to form a whole. We would integrate the two. And so we're talking about integrating life and faith and bringing the two together. Now, I didn't have long. Imagine these are cellophane. Imagine they're, they're blue and purple and they come, uh, blue and red and they come together to form a nice purple thing. Can you imagine that? Great, excellent. That's what I want you to tell everybody that I did this morning, okay? Um, but you got the, the two-minute just for the service version. Um, faith and life. And that, that's a job, to bring life and faith together. Now, you've all got a life. Uh, each of us have a life. You didn't do anything to get it. Um, you just were given it. Um, you don't really do much to maintain it, really, do you? Um, you don't work hard at all. We all get life. But just because you have life, it does not necessarily mean you will have faith. It is not a natural consequence of life. If that were the case, if it was a natural consequence, the older amongst us would be more faithful. It would just, life just makes you faithful. It just feels like, but it doesn't happen, does it? The two were quite separate. In fact, you have to be quite deliberate in bringing faith and life together. Which brings me to my next quote. Uh, this is my quote. The key to successful integration of faith and life is intentionality. You need to be intentional in doing that. 
It just doesn't happen. Even though God is trying to achieve this in your life, even though God is seeking to disciple you and to father you, to become the, the best you, the most holy you you can be, it doesn't naturally happen. You need to be intentional. Now, the Bible knows this all too well and sends uh, God throughout the scriptures, sends hundreds of prophets and teachers to go and instruct people in this very thing. Uh, that, that you need to work at this. You don't, don't forget God. Don't, don't abandon God. Don't, don't walk away. Uh, but walk by faith, not by sight. You need to do this again and again and again. And uh, I want to bring our attention to one of the most famous um, calls from one of God's prophets to his people. Uh, and it comes from Joshua, the book of Joshua, chapter 24. And here we have Joshua addressing the people of God at the very end of his, his ministry. Um, so they have, have been set free under the leadership of Moses. They have been freed from slavery from Egypt. Uh, they have seen God part the Red Sea, send the plagues, destroy their enemies. They have come to the promised land. Joshua then has led them into the promised land. They have encountered countless battles, um, all of which they have pretty much had to do nothing. You know the stories of Jericho? You know, how are we going to take Jericho? Um, well, God wants us to walk around and, and then yell really loud. Really? Um, yeah. Uh, and God will deliver. God, God says, and Joshua reminds the people that, you know, who was it that went before you and sent the two Ammonite kings fleeing? Yeah, you didn't have to raise a hand. You literally walked, stepped foot into their land. And the fear of God had entered them so much that as you stepped in the land, they fled. You walked into open towns and cities and villages, livestock, fields, houses, all of this here, vacant. You, you just moved on in. You did nothing to deserve it. God had, had given you this land, given you a place to stay. He'd done so much for you. And now right at the end, he gives this charge to the people. Joshua 24, verse 14 to 15. He says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Notice whom, whom you will serve. Choose the day whom you'll serve. There is no option of not serving anybody. There is never an option. We all serve something. We all serve something. It's just what you serve. Choose today whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you were living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Now, it's really interesting, the language here. Um, this word serve. It's not trust the Lord. It's not believe the Lord. It's not acknowledge the Lord. It's, it's that you will serve the Lord today. There seems to be this very strong tie between if, if you, you do want to honour our God, then you will serve him. You will act in ways that, that show your faithfulness to him. Because you can't have true faith without action. It's got to impact your life. The two have to join. Think of it this way. If I told you that I'm a trained medical doctor, um, I can show you my degree. I can also show you my licences, that I um, am a registered um, medical practitioner in Australia. Um, and uh, but I've I've never really practiced medicine. I, I've never 
saved someone, I've never um, healed someone, I've never um, given an injection, I've, I've never inspected In fact, people come up to me and say, please, please, here's an emergency, can you, can you see this person, can you treat them? And I say, sorry, no, don't do that. Um, can, can I call myself a doctor? I, I, I have all that it takes to be a doctor. I've, there, there's potential for me to be a doctor, but I've never actually doctored. I, 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 I don't know if I can call myself one. Same with Christianity. I can know all the right things. I can know everything about God. I can know what it is to be a Christian. I can know what Christians do. Um, but if I've never done anything to show I'm a Christian, can I be a Christian? No. Our actions and our faith have to come together, life and faith. And so, no wonder, he says, who will you serve today? Where will you where will you put your money where your mouth is? Don't give me lip service right now and say, yeah, we worship God. And then turn and go from this meeting and then the very next thing you do is go offer sacrifices to another God. Don't do that. That's the, your actions need to match you, what you say. Um, and of course, what do the Israelites say? that are all assembled there. They say, we would never abandon the Lord and serve other gods. For the Lord, our God, is the one who rescued us and our ancestors from slavery in the land of Egypt. We would never do that. Now, how long do you reckon it took them before they did? You know, you've read some of the Bible, haven't you, at least? Um, we don't even need to read the Bible. How long does it take for you to have a God moment where you've heard from God, God's spoken to you in the Bible, or there's that moment you feel close to God? How long does it take you from going to there to completely turning your back on God and going, oh my goodness, where is God? I mean, that can be a really short time sometimes, can't it? We all know what it's like because it's not easy to do that. It's not easy. It's not natural, nor is it easy. There are obstacles. There's a cost for doing that. Here's four. Because our faith should impact how we live. Faith should impact our moral compass. Yes? What we see as right and wrong should be really clear to us. The Bible talks a lot about that the whole Old Testament law is written to help them understand what is holy and righteous and good and what is not. And so we come to the, the, the scriptures and it helps us see what is good and right. And that is very different to what the world tells us. When you think in the area of politics or social policy or the major social issues of our day that the Christian worldview is often at odds with what the world is saying. So not only does it make you stand out as different but at times you can actually bring scorn and ridicule, persecution upon yourself for holding these, these Christian views. There's a cost to bringing faith into your everyday it impacts our values. What do we think is important? What do we think is important? Uh, is, is your security and your happiness and your comfort important? Should you do whatever it takes to secure that? Or is it more important to feed the orphan and the widow and care for the poor? What's more important? As Christians, we should have something to say about this. We should say, this is more important. This is what God's calling us to. These are our priorities. These are our values. Things are important to us. We've ripped down the banners. We used to have them up. Our values around the place. We prefer soundproofing. Um, 
our actions. Our faith should impact our actions, shouldn't it? How I live my life, the things that I do with it. Do, do I use my time and my spare time to, to indulge myself? Or do I use it to, to serve, to give? With my money and our finances, do, do I hoard or am I generous? Do, do, do I freely give? Knowing that, that my priority, my values, says that I, I don't place value in money, it's my values in God, my security is in Him, and so I can be free in my actions to give. And what about our relationships? Of course we should live differently to others. What does the Bible say? You, they, you will, they will know you are mine because of your, your love. Uh, in our relationships, we should be loving. And I don't know if we stand out too much from others. It's not to say that if you don't have God in your life, you can't love, or that you can't value the same things God values, or that you can't act in, in godly, righteous ways without God. But as Christians... We've got no excuse. We know what God says, of course, too. And that will set us apart. It will make us look different. Uh, John Stott, in his commentary on Sermon on the Mount, he says this, he says, No comment could be more hurtful to the Christian than the words, But you're no different than anybody else. For the essential theme of the whole Bible from beginning to end is that God's historical purpose is to, to call out a people for himself. That this people is a holy people, set apart from the world to belong to him and to obey him. And that its vocation is to be true to its identity. That is, to be holy or different in all its outlook and behaviour. That's who we're meant to be. And there's a cost to that because we will stand out. And sometimes when you stand out, you get ridiculed. It's just how it is. But how prepared are we to do that? It does come at a cost. You will be different. You might get laughed at. You might lose relationships. All sorts of things might happen. And yet we're called to bring our faith into every, our every day. Our every day. Now let's go to David and Goliath. This is about 400 years after Joshua has given the decree, choose today who you will serve. And they all go, God, absolutely. And of course, up and down, failure through the judges. But we're now in a time where, where Israel has yelled out to God and said, we want a king, we want a king to rule over us like everybody else. That, that, that's, that, that's great, isn't it? <laughs> I, mean, I want you to be holy and different to everybody else. No, 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 we want to be like everybody else. Okay, I'll give you a king. So they get a king. Saul is their king. He's put in place. And uh, we pick up the story where... Um, Saul has is, is entered into battle with the Philistines. The Philistine nation has gathered their army together and they've gathered on the, the top of this mountain, look, overlooking a valley. And so Saul gathers his army on the other side of the valley, they gather. And so these two uh, armies face off against one another. And in the story we find that uh, the champion of the Philistines, Goliath, is giant of a man. He's so large that the spear he carries... Uh, that just the head of the spear alone, the sharp pointy middle bit on the end of the shaft, is, is so large that it weighs more than six kilos. Um, I don't know, how much is a shop put? What's a shop put? For kids, maybe. Maybe a bit higher. I don't know. Come on, where? It's the year of the Olympics. Come on, we should be studying and training up on this. Isn't it? How, high, how heavy is a shop put? Eight? Just a rough guide. Eight kilos, you know. Yeah. 
12 and 20, oh, okay, so that, that, that's a decent, so we're talking half this. So that's a decent, you can throw that a decent way, but to be able to throw it and become a useful weapon in warfare, I mean, you've got to be pretty big and strong to wield that thing around, let alone a brass shaft, it's not wood, you know, light, that's why we use wooden spear handles, so it's light and it goes further. This whole thing's made of brass. I mean, this is a heavy thing. This guy's a big guy. Um, he's not only big, but he's an experienced veteran in war. He is... A, a, their champion. He has tested himself again and again in battle and proven himself again and again, so much so that out of this entire army, we go, if we're going to send anybody out to battle, it's him. And so he goes out and he comes out, and that's where we pick up the story in uh, 1 Samuel 17, verse 8. It says this Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. Why are you all coming out to fight? he called. I'm the Philistine champion, but you are only the servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. And when Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. Who wouldn't be terrified? I mean, you're sitting there going, Please don't pick me. Please don't pick me, aren't you? Some of you would be thinking, I know it's not going to be me. <laughs> like, there's no way I'm the champion. But others are there going, gee, it could be me. I don't want to go out there. And it says they are terrified and deeply shaken. Like, what does it take for, to deeply shake you? Like, for you to, to literally be a bit weak on your knees and have to support yourself and go, whoa, um, this is scary stuff. And all of them, like that, when Saul and the Israelites, all of them, and then in verse 16, for 40 days, now, now get this, for 40 days, every morning and evening, so twice a day, for 40, so 80 times, this guy has come out and said the same thing. 80 times they've had to come out, face up, and he's come out. Every morning and evening, the Philistine champion strutted in front of the Israel army. I mean, picture that, strutting. Who struts? I mean, this guy is cocky. He is confident. He is out there going, I know I'm a big deal. I know you are terrified. I know I'm intimidating. Like, he is strutting around. I imagine as the days go on, you know, 10 days have passed. No one's challenged him. He's like, yeah, yeah, I got this. Come on, come on. And he's strutting around, flaunting it in front of everybody. Come on, you know, who's going to take me on? You know, I'm sure, you know, he, he threw his spear down. He said to his shield bearer, go, go back. Come on, I'll face you unarmed. Come on. Yeah, he's strutting around. And so for eight, 80, 40 days, he sat there flaunting it in front of them. And not one of them, not one of them has the guts to face him. But then someone new comes onto the battlefield. 1 Samuel 17, 20. So David left the sheep with another shepherd. Uh, so David, a shepherd boy, uh, his dad Jesse, uh, has sent all the rest of the sons out to fight. So David left the sheep with another shepherd and set out early next morning with the gifts as Jesse had directed him. He arrived at the camp just as the Israelite army was leaving for the battlefield with shouts and battle cries. Now, now this is just funny. Um, again, you need to picture this. Here's the Israelites who for 40 days had been wetting themselves on the battlefield, <laughs> getting themselves all dressed up for battle, gearing themselves up, lining themselves up to march to the battlefield, crying, 
Yeah, rah, battle cries, here we go, charge. You know, they're prepared for battle, they're talking about battle, they're acting like they're going to go in battle, and then when they get to the battle, what do they do? All 80 times they go, <laughs> and they back away. These aren't warriors, what are, what are they doing? This is, I think it's meant to be funny that he tells us that they're shouting battle cries. Now, of course, this is David's first time on the battlefield. So he hasn't seen it happen 80 times before this. He's, this is his first time. And he turns up and he's like, yeah, like, you can imagine he's joining in. He's caught up in the excitement and he's heading off to the battlefield and, and they get there. And then in verse 26, we read this. David asked the soldier standing by, what will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? Now, right here, He's not asking because he's like he's worried, he's fearful. He's asking because he, he pretty much heard, he's just confirming and what the prize was. Now, it was a fantastic prize. This is the stuff of legend and of fairy tale. If you win, you get to marry a princess. It's pretty cool, isn't it? You get to marry a princess. Not only that, we'll throw in the, um, the extra added bonus that you and your family will never have to pay taxes again for the rest of your life. What a great prize. Like, why is no one taking this? I'm sure David's asking, what's the prize? Really? Now, he's asking in such a way that the king notices. He gets wind of there's this guy asking. So he's not asking because he's curious. He's asking because he's, look, he's ready to, to say, I'll take it. Who is this pagan? After he asks, you know, because after all, who's this pagan Philistine anyway? that he's allowed to defy the armies of the living God. We're getting a sense here that David sees things differently, aren't we, than the rest of them. Who is this guy? Anyway, the king catches wind of this and and calls him in uh, to talk to him. And in verse 32 we read, Don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fight him. I'll go fight him. To which Saul says, Listen here, son. Listen here, kiddo. Um, why don't you just go back and look after the sheep you've been tending? You know, you're obviously unfit for this. You're not even dressed in armour. I mean, after all, come on, we're, we're here on a battlefield. Who are you? You were sent by your father to, to deliver cheese and bread to your, your siblings. Um, yeah, there's mockery, isn't there? Here is someone who is in their life bringing faith into it, isn't it? Who is this Philistine who is mocking our God? How dare he address our God that way? How dare he challenge the people of God? Is everybody else not seeing this? I'll fight him. I'll fight him. Saul says, oh, well, here you go, try on my armour. He tries it on and um, he decides not to wear it. And uh, in verse 36, he says this, as Saul's like still going, mm, gee, you know, you're not, no armor, no, no anything. I don't know. He's still unsure about whether to send him in. And David says this: I have done this to both lions and bears. What's he talking about? I've gone and fought lions and bears. Anyone else done that? Not me. Um, that's pretty big. <laughs> I remember the first time I read that. Like, wow, this guy took on lions and bears. <laughs> wow. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe they were just little mini lions and mini bears. I don't know. Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> I think they were lions and bears, um, full-size ones. Um, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defiled the armies of the living God. Now, if we stopped there, 
if that's where the, the story sort of ended, or this statement ended, we, we could think that, that David is prepared to do this in his own strength. And let's face it, to understand this story, this is not a story of, of someone who's never done anything like this before, saying, I'll do it, and then they do it. I mean, David had been prepared for this moment, hadn't he? I mean, David had been protecting, he had staff and sling in hand, and he defended his sheep. I don't know what the first thing he had to defend the sheep from was. What was the first creature that would have, would have posed a threat to his, his flock? I don't know. Maybe it was a... Maybe. No, I was thinking more wombat. Um, you know, tiny, you know. As a young kid with a sling in his hand, I mean, imagine that. You're eight years old out there, and, and you see a rabbit. You go, look at that nasty rabbit. It's going to get my sheep. And so he starts with a rabbit, you know. Ah, miss, miss. But, you know, eventually... He's getting those rabbits. And then eventually there, there is a, a fox. There's a fox and ooh, I'll get that fox. And then all of a sudden there is maybe a wolf. Maybe it's a lone wolf. Maybe it's a pack of wolves. You know, and then one day eventually he's faced with a lion. And, and for the first time, this is the first time, I've, I've never fought a lion. But he's confident. He's comfortable with his tools. He knows what to do. Keep your distance, get the angle and, and get that thing. Uh, he's, he's been prepared for this. And, and each challenge he's faced has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. And now he faces the biggest challenge he's ever had to face, isn't he? All of a sudden, he's facing off against giants. Here is this giant that is there. And this is unlike any challenge he's had to face before. You might go, well, I'd rather face a giant than a lion. But you know, that, that lion, you know, you hit it. You might not even kill it, but you give it a good stun and it's going to run, isn't it? You know, it's, it's going to go fight or flight, you know, and, and you, you can scare a lion off. You can scare a bear away, maybe. Um, but this guy, now this guy, he's not going to run. He, he's not going to get scared. This is a veteran. He's, he's going to fight to the death, and either you are going to die or he is going to die. This is a big, scary challenge. No, this is the biggest challenge he's ever had to face. And yet he says, I've done this to both lions and bears. I'll do it with this pagan Philistine too, for he has defiled the arms of the living God. And if it stopped there, you'd go, this guy's just confident in his own strength. He's going, I've done this before. I've got this. Don't worry. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on. It's verse 37. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. He looks back and recognises that it's not his own strength that's delivered him in the past. It is God's strength. It is God who has equipped him. It's God who has built him up to this point where he can stand against giants. And he recognised even in the little things it was God. And now I stand here and it's God who's brought me here. And it's the strength of God that gives him confidence to face the giant. And we know how the story ends. He goes out. He faces down, and you know, staff and sling, that's it. That armour, couldn't quite get the... <coughs> I needed, so shake that off. He's free now to go out. And I mean, I don't know about you, if I'm going out to war, I'm prepared. You know, I, I've, I've made sure I've, I've gone out and I've scoured the ground. In fact, I've sent the whole army out saying, I need the roundest stones you can find. I, I need the best equipment ever. Um, go, go. But no, he just walks out, and on his way, we're told, he goes... He picks up a few stones along the way. That'll do. And then he goes out. He's Sure, he's confident. But his confidence doesn't come from his skill and his ability. His confidence comes from God. And we've got to stand back and ask ourselves, what, what is David seeing here that the others aren't? Because his, his, 
actions are different to everybody else's? What makes him so different? Why does David step forward in faith when the others don't? What's he seeing that the others aren't? The others are seeing this giant of a man, this giant obstacle, this giant opposition that stands before them, and that's what they see. And and they're terrified, they shake, they run in fear. David turns up and he sees something big as well. But he sees the biggest fool he has ever seen in his life. He sees this big man who has decided to stand in opposition to God. And he goes, what a fool. Who would dare stand against God? And not only does he see this big fool, he sees something bigger, doesn't he? Who is this person that would stand in opposition against my God? He clearly sees God is bigger than it all. That God's bigger than this battle. That God is bigger than this giant. That God is the one we need to fear here. God's the one we need to listen to and look out for. And so he squarely sets his vision on God. It is God who will deliver us in this season. It is God who will deliver me in this battle. Now we will never have to face off against a giant. I don't know. Unless you're into mixed martial arts. I don't know. Maybe then, possibly. Um, but quite likely, you're not going to have to stand and fight for your life against someone else. But we face giants all the time, don't we? We face those giant obstacles, those trials, those, those, those things that, that burden us, that bring sorrow and heartache, those challenges in life that, that present themselves before us. We stand in front of giants all the time and our hearts grow weary, don't they? And we shake sometimes and we say, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I've got the strength. I don't know if I can, can, can live up to expectations or if I can do what you're asking of me, God, or if I can, can conduct myself in such a way that it will bring glory to you, God, in this situation. I think I'm going to melt. And we face challenges. We, we face giants like cancer. We face things like divorce. We face things like redundancy and bankruptcy. We face things all the time with sickness and disease and poor health, with grief, with loss, with breakdown in relationship. We face these things all the time. And they seem so big. But there is someone even bigger than the problems we face. And that is God. That is God. We're going to have a time where we will... Remember just how great and big our God is in communion now. And we're going to take the, the bread and the cup and remember how big a sacrifice it was that, that Jesus made, that he would shed his blood and lay down his life that we might be set free. We're going to, to, to remember that the bigness of, of the power of God to, to destroy death. We're going to remember just how great our God is. Uh, and I'm going to challenge us as we do that. We're going to have stewards who will come. They're going to come and bring the bread and the cup. And that bread represents the, the body of Christ, that, that cup, the blood of Christ. Uh, and as we drink, we, we specifically remember, and I love the fact that God has built this into our rhythms as his people, that we would regularly remember God, that we would re- regularly remember and set our eyes upon him. And it puts everything in perspective, doesn't it? It helps us to see how good and faithful and loving and caring and big and protective and invested God is in our life. 
so that the problems we're facing don't seem quite so big. And so our stewards are going to come and they can... Have we got stewards? Sorry, yes, good. Um, you can come, you can start handing that out straight away. As that comes around, we're just going to have a time of prayer. Um, and I'll close in prayer, but, but in this time of prayer, I want you to spend some time thinking about what are the things in your life you're facing at the moment? What are those things? And you need to put them in perspective. Remember we said bring, integrating faith and life takes intentionality. You have to deliberately choose to bring these things to God. You need to deliberately choose to put them in perspective and say, you know what, God? This is nothing compared to you. And we're not saying that God's going to take that thing away. We're not saying that God is big enough that he will get rid of every problem in your life. We're not saying that. God never promises that. What he does promise is that I will be with you in it and I will give you the strength you need to get through what you're facing well that you can be righteous, that you can choose good, that you can glorify God in what you're facing, that you can live a righteous life. You don't have to be a victim, but you can live well through whatever you face. So let's take some time to pray. Bring your giants before God. Hand them to him. And just see how big his hands are to take them from you. And then I'll pray shortly.